In the ancient Near East, the firstborn son would receive a double portion blessing upon his father's death. The firstborn was privileged to receive um, more than any of the other sons, to receive land, to receive wealth, uh, spiritual benediction. This was the custom the usual way of things. And so while we see this custom being toppled quite a few times in Genesis, it was nonetheless the usual custom. The usual custom is seen again later in Genesis when Jacob is giving his blessings and inheritance to his sons. Reuben, his firstborn, was set to receive his birthright inheritance. But Reuben, like Esau, also forfeited his, his inheritance. Nevertheless, Jacob gives us some more insight into this idea of the firstborn inheritance, the, uh, the birthright. Genesis 49.3 says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, might, strength. Dignity, power. This language is reiterated in the Deuteronomical laws regulating this birthright custom. Uh, if a man had multiple wives and he loved one wife more than the other wife, he was not allowed to give the birthright to the son of the loved wife. He had to give it to the firstborn, even if that was the son of an unloved wife. Deuteronomy 21.17, he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. This inheritance was a right, according to Deuteronomy. It was a double portion of everything that the father had, and it would include spiritual benediction, but also the reception of land and wealth. Let's dwell on this for a moment further. In the law, we see other regulations for passing on the inheritance in cases where no son exists. If the man has no sons, then it goes to the daughter. If he has no daughters, then it goes to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then it goes to his closest relative after that. This is in Numbers 27 and 36. And if it goes to the daughter, the daughter is required to marry within the tribe of her father. So this kept their inheritance, their portion, from being taken into other tribes. The inheritance, the birthright, is tied up with the land inheritance that God is giving Israel, and it's specified to the tribes as well. Deuteronomy 4.21, God says, I am giving you the land of Canaan as an inheritance. So there's this connection between the birthright and the land of Canaan. Let's dwell on this a bit further. When we get to the New Covenant, we see that land inheritance is still prevalent. Jesus says, uh, the meek will inherit the earth. Houses and fields are promised to those who leave everything behind to follow Christ. Mark 10, 29-30. A hundredfold inheritance of earthly wealth is given to those who leave everything to follow Christ. Matthew 19, 29. But then we see it extend beyond this. Christians inherit a kingdom that is not of this world. Although it does set itself up in this world. Called the kingdom of God. And ultimately, the inheritance given to God's people in the new covenant is eternal life. It is immortality. And so we don't have time to develop all of this here, but this brief survey shows that these things exist in a nexus of inherited blessings, all culminating and signifying immortality, salvation. The land of Canaan signifies salvation rest. The birthright of the firstborn signifies salvation. All of these things are signified here in Esau's inheritance as the firstborn. The inheritance was everything, and Esau was set to receive it. It was his. Of course, this went against the word of God, but the plans of Isaac were to give it to Esau. Esau was favored. 
But then one day, Jacob cooks a stew. The word for stew is often defined as some kind of boiled legumes or lentils. Augustine makes a lot out of this, saying that legumes and lentils came from Egypt. So there's already something kind of nefarious about this stew. But I think what's more significant is that it's plant food. It's plant food. There's echoes of the garden reemerging here. Big things are at stake. Esau, the hairy red man, comes back from the field, and he is faint. He is weary. He is exhausted. He says to Jacob, please feed me. The Hebrew verb there means to swallow greedily. It has this idea of eating with vigor. Esau had a strong appetite. The Hebrew word for entreat here also has this idea of immediacy right now. So Esau is saying, allow me to greedily devour this plant food right now. The word for the stew that he asks for is adom, red. And the word is repeated. He asks for the red, red. Ha adom, ha adom. Give me some of that ha adom, ha adom. And perhaps there's echoes of the garden in this. In the garden, they're, they're warned with the warning of death, and the word death is repeated twice. Dying you will die, mot tamot. These are superlatives. They're linguistic exclamation marks. The dying death and the redding red. And so he receives the name Edom here because he asked for the Edom, the Edom, Edom. The red man asking for his red, red receives the name red. And again, as we said last week, Edom, Adam, Adam. Adam is acting like Adam. <laughs> There's this wordplay going on here. And it's the same thing. Food, fall, giving up inheritance. So Jacob the supplanter makes a deal with Esau. Sell me your birthright, your inheritance, this thing of great value, this thing that ultimately signifies eternal life. Sell me that inheritance. And Esau says, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Now, there's a couple things to note here. I think Esau's probably being dramatic. His impatience and gluttony are showing through here. There were likely many servants in Isaac's home who could have made him some food. He could have made some himself. Would he really have died in the 30 minutes that it takes to prepare some soup? Let's say it took much longer. Let's say it took several hours. The human body can go for weeks without food. So I think the animalistic, sinful, bestial aspect of hairy hunting Esau is manifesting at this moment. But let's grant that he really is about to die. Let's say he's not being dramatic. Let's say he really is about to die. Should he have entertained the possibility of giving up his inheritance? Matthew Henry says it best when he puts it this way. Was it not better for him to die in honor than to live in disgrace, to die under a blessing than to live under a curse? Yes and amen. He should have chosen death. He should have chosen death before giving up his inheritance. And this is what Adam did. Adam should have done the same thing. He should have chosen death rather than eating the fruit. So both Adam and Edom chose to eat instead of dying. And they, they chose to die in a wrong way, to give up their inheritance in a wrong way, rather than dying and receiving their inheritance. So Jacob has Esau take this oath, relinquishing his birthright. He transfers it to Jacob. He sold his inheritance for some bread and some red. One commentary on this said that oaths in the ancient world were irrevocable, as if they're not irrevocable now. It was just a funny kind of comment. It's like back then they actually meant what they said here. 
But it's true, this was an irrevocable transfer. And then we read this, he ate and drank, arose and went his way. There's a few things to note here. He ate, drank, arose and went his way. Does this sound like a man who is about to die? Does this sound like a man who just, who is about to die and he just ate his first meal? No, uh, it does not sound like a man on the brink of death who would have taken time to recuperate, who would have taken time to uh, soak in this meal. But he eats, drinks, rises, and goes about his way. I think this is showing Esau's um, impatience, his unconstrained appetites. And then also notice how brief it is. He ate, drank, rose, went. He gave up his inheritance for this brief reprieve, this brief relief, this brief satisfaction. And then also the word there, he went his way. He went his way rather than God's way. He forsook, he forsook the way of God. And lastly, la the last thing on this, what is Moses' comment? What, what does Moses have to say about this? What is it? What does he say? Does he say, and thus Jacob displeased the Lord with his trickery. Thus Jacob took advantage of his poor brother. Thus Jacob employed somewhat embarrassing tactics to get his blessing. No. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. And I think we can imply from the opposite of this that Jacob loved his birthright. Esau hated it. Jacob hungered for it. Esau had no hunger for it. Esau's appetites were disordered, and Jacob's appetites were rightly ordered. Remember, Jacob was a perfect man. So Esau didn't hunger for the blessings of God. His soul wasn't thirsty for the words of God. And instead, he bowed to his bodily appetites like a beast to his instincts without regard to the long-term consequences. And in this, he sinned like his father, Adam. It's another fall. It is another fall. And we may think of these things every time we are tempted to sin ourselves. It is this episode replaying itself over and over again. So it's instructive to us. Because we are appetitive beings. We hunger and we thirst. So there's a, really, there's a really practical element of implementation here. That just as our bodies hunger and thirst, we have to control this. We exercise dominion. We exercise moderation in our eating and our drinking. We're not ruled by them. We rule over them. So we control our bodily appetites. But beyond this, there's other kinds of appetites. There's spiritual appetites, appetites for sin, fleshly appetites. And we take dominion over these by killing these appetites, by mortifying our sin, by mortifying the hunger that we have for these disordered appetites. And we take dominion over our bodies by doing this. So we starve the appetites for sin but then the converse of that is that we feed our appetites for God, for his word, for obedience, life in the spirit. By doing this, we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. Jesus says to do the will of the father is his food. He says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And it's interesting in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says this, it follows the inheritance. He says the meek will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. That there's inheritance and appetites paired together in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus gives himself to us as the bread that satisfies our deepest appetites. We will only find our appetites quenched and rightly directed when we walk in obedience to the word of God. And this quenches our parched souls and it feeds our starving hearts. Our hearts have appetites the size of God and only God himself can satisfy that appetite. Okay, so this is also instructive in teaching us the way that God gives his inheritance. Esau, at least at this point in his life, uh, it serves as a warning for all of us that there is no salvation outside the church. That's the way I would summarize this. Paul says in Hebrews, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully, lest anyone shall fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble by And by this, many become defiled. And then this is where this is this is where it gets pertinent. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And this is kind of an enigmatic passage, or at least it has been for me for a while. I, I've read this and I think, is Paul saying something like Esau wanted to genuinely repent later, but he was unable to? That there's something in the decrees of God which prohibited him from repenting, or he exercised sincere repentance, but he was still rejected? It doesn't matter how truly sorry you are, just when you're reprobate, you're reprobate. No, I don't think that that is what Paul is saying here. And what clues us into this is looking at what he says here when he sought it diligently with tears. What is the only place where we, we see Esau crying? <laughs> it's in Genesis 27. Esau is seeking the blessing with tears. Jacob supplants the blessing from Isaac. Esau comes in. He realizes what happens, what had happened, that the blessing had been given to Jacob and that there was no blessing for Esau. And Esau says to his father, Isaac, he says this, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. This is what Paul is referring to in Hebrews. And what's going on here? It isn't that Esau is repenting. It's that Esau wants Isaac to repent. Esau is not interested in repenting here. He isn't wanting to amend his decision. He's interested in Isaac amending his decision. Esau found no place for repentance, meaning he was not repentant. He sought the blessing diligently with tears in unrepentance. And this is not how God gives his inheritance. The inheritance of God are given exclusively to the chosen son just as it was with Jacob. The blessing goes once to the son and only through the son does anyone else also receive the inheritance of the kingdom and eternal life. The covenant blessings of God, the inheritance of the earth and eternal life do not go to Jesus and Buddha. They do not go to Jesus and Muhammad. They do not go to Jesus and Krishna. They go to Jesus alone. And all those in him receive those blessings. So you cannot go to God the Father and say, I'm not interested in submitting to my younger brother and receiving the blessings through him. Bless me too, Father. Have you not a blessing for me too? 
I am unwilling to repent, but isn't there a blessing for me too, Father? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. God said to Rebecca that the older would serve the younger, but Esau was not interested in what the word of God said. He was not interested in submitting to his younger brother. And there will be no inheritance to those who do not submit to the younger brother, to Jesus. There's not an inheritance for Christians and Hindus, for Christians and Muslims, for Christians and Jews. No, there's only an inheritance for Christians. Christians and only Christians inherit the kingdom of God, inherit eternal life. Outside the church, there is no salvation. And Jesus talks of other kinds of Esau's who come to the Father seeking the inheritance apart from repentance. Those who are Christians but are not Christians. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who seek the blessing earnestly with tears, but practice lawlessness, who do not repent. They do not receive the inheritance. These kinds of Christians want the inheritance without repentance. They, like Esau, think there are two blessings, that the inheritance is indiscriminate, going to the repentant and the unrepentant alike. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you that no unrighteous person will inherit the kingdom of God. Like Esau, who wanted to receive the kingdom of God apart from repentance. He wanted God to repent, but God is not a man that he should repent. The inheritance is given to Jesus, and only through Jesus exclusively do we also receive the inheritance of earthly dominion, wealth, prosperity, long life, sufferings, persecutions, martyrdoms, the kingdom of heaven, the forgiveness of sins, the reception of and empowering of the Holy Spirit and eternal life. We inherit all this in and through Jesus alone and no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. All right, let's end with Jesus as the firstborn. We inherit all of these things because Christ has inherited it. Esau as the firstborn gave up his inheritance. Adam as the firstborn among mankind gave up his inheritance. But Jesus as the firstborn retained his inheritance. He did not give it up. He did not forfeit his birthright like Adam and Edom did. Jesus chose to die and receive his inheritance rather than exchange it for a bowl of red like Edom. In Romans 8, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. In Colossians 1, Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that he is the firstborn from the dead. In Hebrews, Paul says Jesus has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, talking about the angels. For to which of the angels did he ever, ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. 
Jesus is the firstborn who doesn't lose his inheritance, but receives all that belongs to him. Unlike Adam, unlike Esau, Jesus receives his birthright. Jesus has by inheritance received a kingdom, the rule and reign over heaven and earth. He has received by inheritance a throne at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, the Son of Man, has received the inheritance of all things. And only in Christ, through faith and repentance, do we also receive these things. Let's pray. The charge is this, love your birthright, prize it, cherish it, value it, protect it, and fight for it. Not your birthright in Adam, but your new birthright in the second Adam. Love it like Jacob did, don't despise it like Esau. Hunger and thirst for it like Jacob did, don't hunger and thirst for a bowl of red in exchange for your inheritance. Hunger and thirst for the blessings of God Almighty. Desire Him and His words and His promises and His covenant more than all else. Grab it, obtain it, Eat it and drink it. It is yours in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.